We're starting quite a journey this morning. I will confess to you, I am I'm incredibly nervous about this. I'm excited about it. I've wanted to do something like preach through an entire book for many years, but I also love the liturgy and the lectionary, and I believe it also has great value. So what we'll be doing is continuing to follow the lectionary as we celebrate the Easter season and into Pentecost, but our epistle readings will be from the book of Romans, and you heard selections from Romans chapter 1 this morning. The challenge with Romans chapter 1 is it really is two chapters. So if you write a book, the chapters tend to break where the ideas change. And that doesn't happen here. You have a shifting of the ideas around verse 18. So our challenge this morning is going to be to deal with what comes first and then what comes second, knowing that what comes second is going to stop like in the middle. We're not going to get very far. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 4, verse 25 is a section. And then it's maybe two sections that are together, but they still go until the middle of chapter three. So for the end of today, and then next week, and the week after, we're dealing with the second chapter. And that's chapters one, verse 18, through like 320. Now, what does that mean? It means this. He's going to open up by telling you what the gospel is. That's the first thing he's going to be concerned with. He's going to define the gospel. What is this thing that Christians think they have? This thing we're supposed to tell other people. What is this thing that saves us when the law does not save us? He's going to define that. And then he's going to begin talking about sin and what we're saved from. And that is going to go again for several chapters in length in a way that initially feels like maybe it's not about you. But by the end of it, it's very clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he will say. None of us are going to be left out of this. So that's, again, our challenge this morning is when we begin looking at the description of sin in chapter 1, verse 18 and following, to remember we're part of this picture he's going to start painting. And this is the thing the gospel saves us from, right? What is this thing the gospel saves us from? Let's, let's maybe start there for a second. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. If you've got your pew Bible, this will be on page 939. We're in Romans chapter 1. Again, chapter 1, verse 18. You did hear it read, I think, a moment ago. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's two things there we're being saved from, and the first one's the big one. That's the wrath of God. The wrath of God that's being revealed from heaven in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is something that maybe is easy to forget. The wrath of God isn't just death. It isn't just the powers that are collapsing in our world. That is earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars and illnesses and famines and all these things. It's not just that. The wrath of God is that his own son was born as a human man. And we are so bad that he killed Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean we didn't kill Jesus. The Bible holds many truths together in tension. But remember, as we sing in that great 
Good Friday hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. It was the will of God to crush him. Why? Because he hates us. And yet, as we know, God so loves us that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish. Again, we got to hold things in tension when we have the entire Bible. The wrath of God is revealed against Jesus on the cross, against mankind in Jesus on the cross, and yet this is also the gospel. So let's come back to the wrath of God and what it means that men suppress the truth. And let's, let's define this saving gospel first. It is so powerful and so beautiful. So go back. We're going to start at verse 1 of chapter 1 and move into it. Because I'm not going to define the gospel for you today. Paul is going to say, there's this thing, gospel. And then he's going to say what it is. And we need to hold that. We need to never let go of that. When he says, this is my gospel that I preach, we need to believe that's what we're supposed to preach. That's what we're supposed to preach to ourselves and to the world. So chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Very common, we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Very common Old Testament, or not, very common New Testament era beginning to a letter. When you write a letter, you put your name first, you put your title second, and then on you go to who you're talking to. His title is going to be quite long though. A servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle. That'd be like saying called to be an ambassador. This is a big term. It means I have all the power to speak that the person who sent me has. And you should listen to me as if I am them. Jesus didn't send a lot of these guys, only a few. And any of them that wrote stuff down, we kept it. And that's called the New Testament. That's how important apostles are to the church. He's one of them. And then he says, as an apostle, set apart, that sounds familiar, I hope to you, St. Paul, to be set apart, set apart for the gospel of God. The word there in the Greek is euangelion. Say that with me. Euangelion. No Y at the front. E-U. Euangelion. E-U added to the word angel. Angelion. Can you hear that there? Yes? What is an angel? An angel is a messenger from God. That's what the word means, is to be a messenger. And there are some messengers slash angels in the Bible that are not the ones with shining light. I don't even know if they have wings all the time. But there are messengers that are merely human. The good message is what euangelion means. Or you may have heard it said, the good news. It's a word of victory, a word of strength. It's when someone calls you up and says... You can't believe what just happened. We had this amazing thing happen to us. I'm so excited. I need to tell you about it. It's connected to warfare. That is, it's the particular type of message that when an army wins a victory and they send a message and a delegation back to the city to say we've won, that's euangelion. Yeah. Paul now says, I am set apart for this gospel. Good news, euangelion. What is it though? He hasn't defined it. And that's what's so important here is to see that he's about to tell us exactly what it is. First, he says in verse 2 that he promised it, this gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So now here's something that's kind of important to, to deal with. Some people have this idea, Old Testament, law, New Testament, gospel. Wrong. 
The Old Testament is filled with the gospel of God. Paul's very clear. It promised the gospel in the Old Testament. The gospel that we know, we believe, and he'll say that in a moment, all of it was foretold to happen by the Old Testament. The Old Testament exists to foretell the gospel. It really doesn't have any other reason. I mean, don't get me wrong. The Ten Commandments are the way you should live. And if you intentionally continue to break the Ten Commandments, it will destroy you. But that's not why the Old Testament was given, so that you could keep the Ten Commandments and not be destroyed. That's not why it's there. It's there to show you the one who would keep the Ten Commandments and so fulfill them for you as part of this this gospel. Okay, so the Old Testament is there to point to the gospel. That's verse two. Verse three, here's the gospel. What is it? Concerning his, that's God's, son. And then what about this son? Who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's point one of the gospel. And then verse four, point two of the gospel. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And then he names him. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you can just say Jesus Christ is the gospel and you wouldn't be wrong. If you're talking to your your Odinist friends and neighbors, uh, they're not going to know what you mean per se. You might have to go a little further. And to do that, again, it's very simple. There's just two things to say. One is that he is the son of David. That he is the one who has come from David's line as his own descended promised heir to the throne, right? Remember that David is the one who God says, I will set one of your children on your throne and he will rule forever. The fulfillment of that in Jesus is part one of the gospel. Yeah? In this, of course, you get to see how Jesus is fully man and all the truth about the incarnation that he is both man and God is, is tied into this. So that is part of the gospel. But again, I'm saying... How would you talk about this to somebody? One of the ways, the craziest ways you can say this today is, what do you believe as a Christian? Well, I believe I have a human king. And I'm supposed to do whatever he says. He rules over everything. I bow the knee to him before any other government. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, why? Right? The second half of this. Point one, he's descended from David. Point two, he is risen from the dead. I should just give you the chance to speak back. He is risen. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. Descended from David, risen from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, the best kind of dogmatic Lutheran is going to say, wait a minute. Isn't the gospel that he was crucified for our sins? And to you, I say, okay. Tension. Remember, there's tension, okay? In his resurrection, the crucifixion is included. He can't rise from the dead if he's not dead, yes? And so when it is proclaimed that he has conquered death, this includes Good Friday. This includes the atoning sacrifice. It's all there. It's just not the first thing Paul says. It's not the the pinnacle of the gospel. That's what you get as you unpack it. As you go down the mountain, you begin to discover all of these other marvelous depths of the good news. But what is Paul set apart to go into the nations to preach? That there's a guy born of the lineage of David who didn't stay dead. And it changes 
everything. Now, let's hold on to that thought for the next 15 weeks. Every time you find the word gospel in Paul, I want you to remember what he means. He doesn't mean necessarily what Lutherans will mean sometimes when we talk about law and gospel. He does and he doesn't. He's much more specific though. We don't want to replace it with our jargon. We want to replace it with, he is risen. Alleluia. Now, if you want to test me on this, flip into the book of Acts this week. I've challenged you to do this before, if any of you have taken me up on it. Look at the book of Acts. Don't read the whole book. Just read whenever an apostle preaches. There's only about six of those, seven of those sermons that take place. Read what they say. They always mention the resurrection. Every time. Do they always mention the cross? No, they don't. They, they just always mention the resurrection. Does that mean they didn't mention the cross? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means that if we do not preach the resurrection, we're not preaching the gospel. Yeah. And then when you start preaching, by uh, you're not going to preach in a pulpit. So please hear me saying, when you talk about Jesus and you want to tell someone about Jesus, what should you tell him? He died for my sins. That's fine. But why does that matter? Because he's risen. That's why it matters. He's been vindicated. He's been shown to be the eternal son of God, set apart by the Holy Spirit, by the way, here, right? I kind of skipped over that one. Verse four is declared to be son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Huh? So the Holy Spirit's stamp upon Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus, which is why, again, to preach, to proclaim, to share, to talk about the resurrection of Jesus is to give someone else the Holy Spirit. Now, does that mean that they're going to receive the Holy Spirit? Now, they can actually resist the Holy Spirit. But if you want someone to believe in Christ, you must tell them he is risen. Hallelujah. All right. So there's the gospel. Verse 3 and 4 of the book of Romans. De defined by Paul. If you've got your own Bible with you, that's the kind of thing you highlight in, in my book. That's where you want to point your, yourself back to. Now, he's going to go on and say what this gives. So what it gives to us, the results of the gospel... You can, in a wide sense, say that's the good news, too. It's not that what comes next isn't the good news. It is. But it's not the narrow place. Right? It's not where you start when you talk about it. But through Jesus now, verse 5, we get things. This is great. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Grace, apostleship, and faith. Grace means a free gift. Grace means the position of God toward you is positive, not negative. Grace means that he is for you and not against you. Apostleship, Paul has already defined this as the scriptures, as what he writes, as those who were sent with official words to speak what Jesus really thinks. Yeah. So the grace of the word of God coming to you when you were an unbeliever to do what? To turn you into a believer, to turn you into one who is faithful. Now, the ESV here has the obedience of faith, and that's fine. Uh, the challenge with that language, obedience, is it always invokes in us the idea of doing something. Like faith is something I got to I gotta add faith to my Christianity or something like that. When it's, it's really not quite right. Uh, the word is hoop akuo. I'm going to make you say this one too. Say hoop akuo. Hoop akuo. 
uh, the root of that word is to hear, to hear. And then it means to be under the hearing, as opposed to being over the hearing. So you can see where if I say jump and you're under what I said, you would jump, right? So obedience is kind of there. But if I said, I'm going to give you a million dollars, you could hoop a kuo that one too, but you can't really obey that. Yeah, you see the distinction? You can only believe my promise. And the thing about the grace of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is risen is that that is ultimately a promise. You can't really obey that. I mean, again, try this. Don't, don't respond this time, but like, obey me. He is risen. Like, it, there's nothing you can do with that to obey it. And that's why the language is a little confusing. So bringing about the obedience of faith really here is bringing about the activity of faith. Yeah? The existence of faith. And again, it's not as though you don't have faith without Jesus. It's what you have faith in. So I've said this before. Maybe make a note about this if you're taking notes. Faith means trust. Trust. Right? What does it mean to have faith in God? It means to trust God. As opposed to, to trust your television set. I would contend to you that most people today have significantly more faith in their television set than just about anything else. And I include these little toys that you can flip with your thumbs as being television sets. I grew up in the 80s, so to me it's all cable TV. The whole thing is cable TV, okay? So most people trust what's coming out of these screens more than anything else in their life. They will do whatever this screen tells them to do. They will be for whatever this screen tells them to be for, and they will be against whatever this screen tells them to be against. That's trust. That's faith. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is risen, what it does to you is it turns your trust back to where it should be. It takes it off of whatever natural idols you've created for yourself in the world, and it points you back to God the Father by means of this Holy Spirit through the invoking in you of trust that the promise, which is impossible that someone would rise from the dead, that it's true. And boom, you're a Christian. You don't even try. It just happened to you. You've been set apart. You've been chosen, which is what he's going to say here again. Apostleship, obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who were called to belong to Jesus. You didn't choose to belong to Jesus. You didn't choose to follow Jesus. You were called to belong to Jesus. He chose you. Or can I quote my... My confirmation verse, you were bought with a price. Uh, it's slavery, but it's not slavery. It's friendship, but it's not friendship. It's brotherhood, but it's not brotherhood. It's all of these things and so much more. It's Christianity. Yeah. And again, this is the result of the gospel that the son of David has died, risen. And of course, as the phrase goes, he will, he will come again. All right, now for the sake of our time this morning, we're going to skip from there, the end of chapter, or verse 6, all the way back to verse 18 where we began. Remember I said we have two things to do, establish the gospel. We just did that. The second part is begin this next section, which we'll pick up on next week, which is going to be Paul talking about the problem 
Why do we need to be saved? What do we need to be saved from? And the first thing is the wrath of God. So here's, here's a couple things I want to say here, and I'm going to struggle to get them out. Um, first, the wrath of God is good news. The wrath of God is good news. It sounds like bad news. God says, I'm going to destroy that city. And you're like, wow, that's kind of maybe even mean or something. Wow, that's scary. That's bad. But here's the thing. What if the city's evil? Filled with people who kill babies and drink their blood and raid and pillage against all their neighbors and kill all their women and take all their stuff all the time. It's all they ever do. So I said this last week, I believe. I forget which service it was in. War isn't necessarily wrong, depending on who it's between. There's such a thing as a good war, and the good war is when you stop someone evil from attacking you. Or maybe even better, when you stop someone evil from attacking your neighbor. Right? And so a good God is going to do that to his creation. He's going to stop evil from destroying it. And the way he has chosen to do this is to have wrath on the evil. So God's wrath is against evil. And that's good. That's the first point. I'm going to say it again. God's wrath is against evil. And that's good. It's not bad at all. And then with this, remember, righteous wrath from God is also saving wrath for man. It's not saving wrath for the devil. It's not saving wrath for the demons, but it is saving wrath for you. So the revelation of God's wrath against you is part of what it means to believe the gospel. Yeah. And that's what we're going to build on here. That's where he's going to go over time. So that's the first part of it. Um, The second part of it here uh, is to recognize that it's against all. Nobody gets out of this. It's very easy to read chapter 1 and chapter 2 and think in chapter 1, he's talking about them, and in chapter 2, he's talking about us. But don't do that. He's talking about us the entire time. Are there examples in chapter 1 and 2 that are not about you specifically? Yes. He's going to talk about specific sins. He's going to say these things are examples of what it means to do evil. And you don't have to have actually ever done those things for the wrath of God to be revealed against them in such a way that it's revealed against you. Why? Here's the other challenge now. You can't understand what Romans says about law or gospel if you don't believe in corporate truth. By that, I do not mean, you know, Meredith and I were invited to a a quinceanera uh, last night. So we were down in the Schomburg area and I'm driving past all these giant buildings with these names on them. And I think, man, what do they do in that building to be able to afford that building? I don't even know these corporations. Right? And anyway, corporate, that's not what it's about. Okay. Corporate comes from the word corpus, body, body. Okay. And so corporate truth means that humans are not just individual bodies, but that we are group bodies. Your family is a body. What happens to one impacts the others. Our congregation is a body. Our city is a body. Our country is a very divided body. Okay, So humanity is one body. He even has a name, Adam. Adam. Yeah, And Adam's body has the wrath of God revealed against him. 
And what that means again then is that the vilest sinner that there ever was still impacts you in terms of final judgment day outside of Jesus. You don't get to look at any sin there ever was and say, well, I'm better than that guy. Even if you are actually better than that guy, simply by living on the same planet and sharing the same blood, it shows you you're not. You're part of the same problem. You're, you fell off the same tree. You got the same bitter root. Okay, So there is corporate guilt is what I'm talking about now. The corporate guilt of mankind. And then the good news of this is that's how corporate salvation works. One body on the cross. One body falls from a tree. One body nailed to a tree. Complete exchange. And all mankind included in both. Corporate thinking is very important to this book. Hopefully we'll bring that up in the coming weeks. Okay, so again now. The wrath of God is revealed. We talked about this good news, actually, even though it's against us and it's going to feel kind of heavy, right? What's it revealed against? Notice how he doesn't say sin. Paul will talk about sin. Sin is a strange word. We're going to wrestle with this over the next few weeks. It's a strange word. It is a word that is used to translate up to eight different Old Testament bad things. So there's eight different things that the Old Testament says are, are bad things in different ways. And the word sin in English gets translated for all of them. So through that, over the course of particularly the Middle Ages and the Reformation, it became a catch-all word for what it means to be evil. Okay? So to be sinful is to be evil. When we say I am sinful and unclean, I'm saying I am evil. But the word itself, which means to miss the mark, like you're shooting with arrows and you miss the target. It's not the only way the Bible will talk about this problem. And before Paul gets anywhere near the New Testament word, hamartia, for sin, he will first talk about these two other words. And I think they're better. Not that like Paul was wrong to use sin earlier or other places, but more like this. If I say the word sin to you right now, it's such a wide and varied word with so much baggage to it. Most people are going to have a million different ideas of what I'm talking about. But these other two words, they're, they're more narrow. They're more, more clear. So what is God's wrath revealed against? All, first, ungodliness, and then second, unrighteousness. Now, if you've been here a couple of weeks, you know this word ungodliness it's asabea. We talked about this just a couple weeks ago. Asabea. Asabea. It means impiety or, again, godlessness, to have no fear of God, to do what you do without a conscience. Asabea, right? You're not worried about the repercussions. No one saw me do it. I'll be fine. Godlessness. That's the first thing he's revealing his wrath against. And no, this is us. We all have this inside of us. We all think we can get away with something. And then the second thing, unrighteousness, adikaya. Can you hear it in both asabea and adikaya, the a on the front end? It's called an alpha privative. We do this in English. It's the way of negating a word. So an atheist, an atheist is someone who doesn't believe in God, right? So asabea is without piety. And then adikaya is without righteousness. What's righteousness? It's like being upright. Or it's like being in a straight set of lines without going outside the lines. It's what it means to have scales that are, are matched. I don't know if you know where that idea comes from. 
It says back in the day, if you took your coin to buy something at a market, they might have a scale there and they'd put the coin on the scale with a weight on the other side to be like, okay, is this really all gold? Huh? Or, or what else did you put in this to make it look like gold, but it's not gold? And then, of course, the guy who's doing this, uh, his weight isn't quite right either. Yeah? And so, so both sides are trying to get one over the other. God hates that. God hates that. And I can say pretty clearly, God doesn't like inflation. He thinks it's cheating. And it is. And you should think it's cheating when your politicians don't do anything about it. Uh, it's, it's a dishonest scale. Yeah? Now, what does that mean? I mean, God tears down these things. We'll leave God to do all of that. Here, the wrath of God is revealed against this, adika, wherever these dishonest scales are found. And this isn't just about what any bank is doing. This is about life. It's about changing the words, lowering the bar, trying to slide yourself in and make yourself believe you're something that you're not. His wrath is against this. And then the rest of the verse, that by this, by this unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. Huh? You see how a dishonest scale is suppressing the truth? So what does God really want? Truth, reality, what he made to be what it is. What is the devil's first game? Did God really say? Huh? He's going he's to twist the truth. And now the wrath of God is being revealed against all these things. Now, we're basically out of time for this morning. I've barely touched on any of this. Um, I want to give you at least one more set of verses before we go. Uh, to close with, uh, verse 24 and 25. And we'll, we'll kind of pick up with this thought next week in chapter 2. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So you see that the truth is being given up, just like he said, the suppression of the truth. And what's the primary truth? The exchange of God for the creation. Huh? The exchange of God for the creation. The Old Testament word for that is idolatry. False worship. How you worship, who you worship, matters more than anything else. Remember how our Lord said that Christianity is about the worship of spirit and in the truth. Yes? So, when you exchange true worship of the true God, which now is, He is risen. Alleluia. When you exchange the true worship of God for the worship of the creation, what happens as a punishment is that, verse 24, God gives you up to your lust to your heart, to impurity, which will lead to the dishonoring of your body. And this can be done in more ways than one, but I know you can imagine a couple pretty quickly given the times that we're living in right now. And he will talk about this more later, chapter two. But what I want to be very specific on here is this, that God's wrath is to let you be. It's not always fire out of heaven. He just lets you be, you start your own fire. He just removes his hand of protection and lets you kill yourselves. He just lets you go and chase whatever you want. One of my, my favorite slash scariest places in the Old Testament is where he says, oh, you think your riches are going to save you? Guess what? I'm going to give you so much money you won't know what to do with, and then you'll see what will happen. And it's not good. It's not good. When God gives you over to what you want, you want evil. 
And this is the sign that we have a major corporate problem as a species. It's not global warming. Uh, uh, it is our sinful, unclean selves by which we're always trying to put one over on everyone else with our dishonest scales. Whether that's in personal relationships where we're judging everyone else with the first look, or whether that is indeed in business and life where you're trying to get out of your neighbor more than you have to give. And God's wrath is revealed against this in the death of Jesus Christ. So that the resurrection of Jesus Christ will wake you up to believe that you have been set apart for something different. A world that is coming that will not be like that. Where you'll live in innocence and righteousness and blessedness. And that world is here now through your faith. Through your knowledge that is coming. You are different. You are set apart. You are alive. You are regenerate. You are made new. You have the mind of Christ. And again, we'll get into that more and more as the book goes on. But our introduction to Romans chapter 1. In the name of Jesus.